Welcome back, Explain Yourself listeners. On today's episode, we're chatting with Luke Gerritsen. Luke is from Holland, but currently lives in the Caribbean tropical island of Curacao, where he is a GM of a local restaurant. Luke has been a bartender, has even won a bartending competition, and has spent many years in the restaurant and bar industries. Julie and I had a lot of fun talking to Luke about what bartending and GMing a restaurant is like in another country and what kind of differences and things he's learned as he's worked across several different countries. Luke, welcome to Explain Yourself. We are very excited to have you here this afternoon. Thank you. Excited to be here. So, you specialize in cocktails. So as our listeners know, Julie and I love to enjoy a cocktail or two all the time. Uh, so we asked you to suggest a cocktail for us. Mm-hmm. And I am not a big drink, not a big gin drinker. So I specifically asked for a gin cocktail. So you, can you tell listeners what you suggested for us? Yeah, of course. It's, um, it's actually a drink that's on our current menu at the restaurant. Um, we kind of wanted something light, refreshing, not too, um, not too heavy. So it's basically gin with some vanilla syrup, some Aperol for a little bitterness and a little bit of orange flavor, and then some fresh cucumber and all that shaken up with a little bit of lime juice and then garnished with some uh, fresh black pepper. We call it the garden gnome. It, it has a very pretty red kind of pinkish color to it. I did not have Aperol, so I used Campari and then I made Tim try it and he told me it was bitter and had I had Aperol, it might be a little bit better. So can you tell me what the difference between Campari and Aperol is? Um, People basically call Campari Aperol on steroids. It is both an orange flavored bitter aperitif, so an Italian liqueur. Aperol is a little lighter in alcohol. It's about 16% alcohol, where Campari is around 30. And Campari is just a lot more bitter. It's, uh, that, that's the main thing. It's, um, it's just a heavier, more bitter version of the orange liqueur. Annika just wanted to get her drinks in this Sunday afternoon. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah I, nothing like a little Sunday fun day. <laughs> There's actually Campari in my drink, too, so it's not a bad idea. Is, are you also drinking the Garden Gnome? No, I'm not. I'm, um, I didn't have any cucumber. I did have gin, but I went tequila. So I've been kind of a play in a Paloma with um, tequila, some Campari, some fresh lime and fresh grapefruit juice. Julie, what are you drinking? I, as of 30 minutes ago, just got done running the Chicago Triathlon. So in order to not completely wreck my body, I have a blue raspberry body armor that I am holding on to for dear life. You didn't want to pour a little vodka in there? Maybe give me another 30 minutes, but this is my first time sitting down in 12 hours. I'm unwell. I can promise you your legs are going to not be happy with you when you get up after we finish recording this. I'm not getting up. This is my work chair. I can stay in it until Friday at five. Like, I'm good. Sean's just going to come wheel you to the shower afterwards. <laughs> um, okay, well, Luke, we start every episode asking guests what they wanted to be when they were kids. All right. So I had to do a little research on this because I couldn't remember. Um, I never really had an idea of what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do when I was like really young. Um, I started playing saxophone when I was about eight years old. And I had this image in my mind that was going to be a professional saxophone player for a while. 
Um, always music has always been a big thing. My dad is very um, musically talented, plays multiple instruments. Um, my brother used to play the guitar. My mom plays CDs and nothing else. But um, I just decided that that's what I wanted to be. And that's also what my parents said. I asked them, I listened, someone's asking me what I wanted, what I wanted to be when I was five years old. And they're like, I have no idea. They had no recollection of me ever having like, the, I want to be a firefighter kind of situation. Was there a saxophone player that you looked up to or listened to a lot as a kid that made you want to be one? Not necessarily. Um, I went more towards the, the classical, like 30s, 40s jazz uh, performers. Stan Getz was one of my favorites, but more like overall the instrument and, and the music style in general, like just old school jazz, like the 30s, 40s. That's kind of what I was going for and um, joined uh, bands in school and like school orchestra and all those things. And then decided that looking into like career options with music, um, you're either gonna be a professional player, which is very unlikely, or you're gonna be a music teacher. And that's just not something that I looked forward to. So I kind of had to pivot. And then I was always technically inclined. So I went to um, look into like IT a little bit more about six months to a year before I wanted to, or before I went to college, I just decided that that's not what I wanted to do either. And then I went to my backup plan, I guess, which was always restaurant business. I started working in an ice cream shop when I was 14, always had like restaurant jobs, odd jobs here and there, and always enjoyed that a lot. So I decided maybe that's something I want to go professional in, and here we are. So you grew up in a, you called a small town in Holland, is that correct? I mean, it wasn't small, small. It still had like probably around 200,000 people for Dutch. I mean, Dutch Holland is really small as a country. It's like a quarter of the size of Colorado, but we have about 17 million people. Basically, the whole country is pretty densely populated. And I grew up a little bit closer to the German side of, uh, of the country. So for me, I mean, 200,000, it's not a big city, but it definitely was, um, wasn't a, a tiny village either. So. Well, yeah, Holland for the first 19 years. Um, and actually, I, that, that was my hometown in Daventer, it's what it's called. And then I moved up north for college for a couple of years, uh, still in Holland. And then when I was um, 24, that's when I moved to the States for one year. Did you notice any differences between like how people talk about their work um, or think about work comparing Holland in the United States? Not necessarily. I think people in general in Holland are very straightforward and very direct. We have a pretty crude sense of humor in general. So I noticed that like getting closer with people in, in Boulder and also getting to know people a little bit better was a little bit more difficult because kind of like the, the conversation styles were different. But I mean, people are pretty much equally serious about work and everything else in Holland and in, in the US and anywhere I've been actually, it's, uh, I mean, you work to be off in the weekend and have fun basically. And then some people take their careers a bit more serious and some people don't, but I think that's more a personal trait than it is, has anything to do with culture in that sense too much. So you got your degree in hotel management, right? Yes. So what did your internships, did you have internships and what did those look like? So we, my school, we had small internships, like internal internships in the, in the first couple of years. So we had a school restaurant, a small school hotel, 
and you just have like eight weeks of working there basically and being taught details and being taught like the, the process and the procedures. Um, and then the big internship is, is year four. And for me, that was supposed to be New York. And then I failed on just a couple of points in, in one of my subjects and I had to redo the whole year. And then New York fell through. And then uh, my internship coach actually came up with uh, the position in Colorado, which at that point I hadn't really heard about Colorado that much, but he kind of sold it on me. And I was there six weeks later and I had probably the best year of my life. Up until that point, had you ever been to the U U.S. before? I had been to New York once, uh, just on like a four-day trip with a friend. But if, no, besides that, I hadn't, no. Yeah, so Colorado and New York are very different places. Yep. I'm sure you ended up loving Colorado, but did you want that kind of city life of New York or, um, or what was the pull? I mean, I wasn't really informed enough to make that decision like consciously, I think. It was more the opportunities that we got and the hotel and the position that I would be able to fulfill in, in Boulder was um, a lot more diverse. It was supposed to be like six weeks in front desk and six weeks in housekeeping and six weeks in the bar, six weeks in the restaurant, and then some management stuff. And the one in, um, in New York would be a lot more just on the floor and just more just bar and restaurant. Um, but yeah, looking back for sure, New York, just busy and never, never quiet, always just like six speeds more. And then Colorado is very, or especially Boulder is very European. Uh, if you compare it to a lot of the rest of the US, um, especially where I've been. I mean, I've been to bigger cities, but it's, uh, it's very, very free minded and very European, very, very laid back. And that really, I like that a lot. You said that Boulder was the best year ever. I mean, in just new experiences and, and uh, doing things I hadn't done before and, and taking my career to next levels too, because I mean, they literally just fired two bartenders and told me, here's, a, here's the bar Bible, 55 drinks, you start tomorrow. So for me, that was pretty insane. But it's, um, yeah, I just had a lot of fun. I met a lot of cool people um very different culture to to where i grew up very open very friendly very um yeah entrepreneurial as well like everybody was kind of already looking into what they were going to do even though we were younger and i really enjoyed the service industry in the us and in boulder in particular because it's very much aimed towards pleasing the guest where in holland it might sometimes be a little bit more closed off and more a job than a career kind of thing maybe I think too, Boulder is unique with it being a college town as well. So you have the very touristy aspect of it that it's in Colorado. It's kind of in that main corridor of places that people go to visit. And then it's also this college town that it has two very unique kind of scenes, I would say. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, the, the nightlife is pretty cool because it's very young and very dynamic. And then obviously there's a couple of really good sports teams. Um, and I went to a lot of games, basketball, football, baseball, everything. So that was really cool. And you don't really get exposed to that a lot in, uh, in Europe besides soccer or tennis. So not really the sports that I'm into. So that was really cool. And um, yeah, for sure. It's it, the touristy part. I mean, if you've lived in Amsterdam, you're used to the touristy part. That's not a, it has 800,000 people living there, but there's always like 2 million people in the city. So that's, that wasn't really anything new for me. 
yeah, the college life on such a big scale is something that we weren't really used to in, in any of the cities in Holland. I want to back up for a second and talk about the bar Bible. So you said 55 drinks are those like what you should know if you're going to go be a bartender anywhere, like 55 standard drinks. No, not in that case. This was more like their signature drinks and their versions of any classics. I would say there's probably about, let's say, 20 to 30 drinks that you should know top of your head if you want to call yourself a serious bartender. That's my take. Honestly, here that's here on the island that is, that's not really the case. A lot of people here, and I mean, the younger generation bartenders in general, they kind of start making their own things. They've read like four things on the internet and they start making their recipes and they start coming up with smoke this and, and infuse that and like all the cool sounding things. And they want to throw some bottles around, but they can't make a good Negroni or a good martini or a good daiquiri, you know? So for me, it always goes back to the basics. And that's always what I start trainings with and everything like that. If you want to work in my bar, here's 20, 30 drinks. You need to know those. And some of those were in that bar Bible that we got. And uh, some of them were just um, the, the, house the house signatures, pretty much. Can you give me one of the 20 to 30 drinks I should know as a bartender and I, and I can tell you what I think's in them? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, you want an easy one or a difficult one? I want a difficult one. Jokere. Oh, yes. That is clearly, that is ooh, gin, nope. elder flower syrup, <laughs> <laughs> lemon juice. And club soda. Nailed it. I mean, that sounds delicious, but none of the, literally not a single one of those ingredients are correct. So what is it really? It is, um, depending on the recipe, either rye whiskey or brandy with some Peychaud's bitters, um, some uh, simple syrup, and then you rinse the glass with some um, absinthe. So it's kind of a play on an old fashioned, very straightforward old fashioned, but then with the spritz of absinthe in the glass, you get a bit of that aniseed flavoring. You're saying that's one of the drinks that every bartender should know how to make? Yes. So <laughs> we've definitely been to restaurants before and Tim has tried to order this and he's had yes. to like Google it and pull it up to show him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not the most common classic, but it's definitely one of the things that you should know. But I mean, go to a bar here and go to a bar in a lot of places actually and just try to order a basic old fashioned or a basic Manhattan and people don't even know what that is. I mean, I have a guy, a guy working in my bar and he just started out bartending like two months ago. He had zero experience. We're literally teaching him everything from the start, which is really cool because he's picking it up really quick. But I also don't want to leave him alone in the bar because if anyone who actually knows their shit comes into the bar and tries to order something and he doesn't know, that kind of reflects badly on me and the restaurant, you know? So that's always the, the trick or the challenge of trying to train people. So what you're saying is Julie's made up drink before is maybe not what you would want served in your bar. <laughs> well, that's not what I'm saying at all. I think actually, if you add a little bit of citrus to that drink, it's going to be delicious. That works really well. Like those are ingredients that every bar has, and that could be a cocktail of the day. And I think it would just sell quite well, actually. All right, Julie, for the next podcast we record, I would like you to make this beverage and report back to us. <laughs> No, I think I've said this a couple of times. I figured out during quarantine that I am the world's worst bartender, which is upsetting because my grandfather owned a bartending school. Oh, and, and I was like there, you know, after class, like hanging out with them. And obviously I didn't pick anything up. I was like seven, but you would think I'd know better. <laughs> I mean, then again, if you would know that at seven, it might not be a good thing either. So after 
your internship in Boulder, where did you go from there? Uh, from there, I went back to Amsterdam. I applied for a couple of jobs, actually, and um, I apparently did not check my LinkedIn well enough. So I was hired for a job that I didn't even reply back to. Funny enough, I did another job at a hotel for a couple of months. I set up a couple of drinks menus for them and some, some operating procedures and all that, and then decided that there wasn't really my place. And I got a call from the same hotel that I originally applied to and actually got that job. So that was pretty cool. Um, did that for about three years. I ran it, the whole, the whole food and beverage department with like three or four other um, supervisors because they weren't hiring managers for some reason. So it was three or four of us and we just split all the shifts and some focused a bit more on the drinks, some focused a bit more on the food, some focused a bit more on the, on the service in general. So it's a pretty cool dynamic. Yeah, after two or three years, I was kind of done with it. I was kind of just done with that place. Um, I just got out of a relationship. Then I didn't really, I mean, my roommates both moved out. And at that point, I got a call from a friend of mine here in, in Curacao, um, a guy I used to go to school with. And he asked me if I wanted to move to the Korean island. And that literally took me about six weeks and I was here. I can imagine yeah. that if somebody asked me to move to a Caribbean island, that would also be my answer. Um, Julie, I'm guessing same for you. Of course, but like my friends asked me to run a triathlon today. They didn't ask me to move to an island. I have the wrong friends. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a case where just all the, the things aligned perfectly at that point. If the relationship was still a thing, I might not have done it. If I still really enjoyed my job, I might not, might not have done it. Because honestly, the salary that they offered wasn't great, but I was just ready for the next step. And I just decided for myself that if I don't do it now, I was 24, 25. No, 27 at that point. I decided like, if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it ever. I mean, it was a snapshot call and I really do not regret it. I've been here for nine years and uh, it's been really good. It's- Had you been there before? I had not, no. All right. Did you know anything about it or you're just like, yeah, I'll go? No, not a single thing. But what I knew about it is that some people that I know from school, they, they live here and they used to go here. I knew a couple of people that went here on holiday. And I knew that the main languages were Dutch and English, the, besides Papimenta, which is the local language. And um, yeah, the, that kind of made it easier for me because you don't have to learn a new language to live in a place because that would make it a lot more difficult for me because languages are not really my thing. Yeah, no, for the rest, I really didn't know anything. And I just decided to take the, take the jump and do it. Within six weeks, you moved there. What kind of job did you move there for? Um, it was a bar manager or bar supervisor position at the Hilton Hotel, which um, isn't here anymore. I did that for about six weeks. Uh, was probably the worst job I've ever had in my life. It just wasn't good. I was hired to do a bunch of things that they ended up not allowing me to do. So I couldn't hire anyone, fire anyone, couldn't really change the menu much, couldn't change suppliers. Uh, I was basically just there working as a glorified bartender, which is not what I moved for. And then I had one guy there that I really clicked with and we ended up having a couple of drinks every now and then. And then a customer bought me a beer after work in my street clothes. And I had it just like at the bar right before I left. And then day after I got called into HR and I got fired from drinking on the job. And I thought that was the biggest bullshit ever. But I really, at the same time, kind of saw it as a blessing because I wanted to leave anyway. It does seem like BS. <laughs> I mean... Technically, they weren't wrong, but also there were so many circumstances that could have made that a lot easier. But whatever, that, at that point, my brother just arrived the day before 
and we were going to the beach and I got a call. You have to go to, to HR now. I'm like, actually, it's my day off and hanging with my brother. And they're like, no, you, you have to come in now. And then I knew like something was wrong. And then two hours later, I'm standing outside with all the stuff that I ever brought into that place. And uh, we still went to the beach and just had drinks. Yeah, couldn't really, I didn't really care that much. It was obviously it was a shitty situation, but, and within a week I had another job. So that was, uh, that was not a big deal at all at that point. You have a job at the place you're at now? Um, no, I had one more stop in between. There was a um, guy from Holland who had lived here for a few years and he approached a bunch of Dutch bartenders from like the three main cities, Holland, or uh, sorry, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and then um, Eindhoven in the south. And he was asking people like, I'm opening a bar on Curacao, first like proper cocktail bar on the island with like flair bartending and all that stuff. Would you be interested to have a Skype call and maybe see if you want to come over? So instead of a Skype call, we met for coffee that same day. And uh, he was kind of surprised I was already there. And then we just hung out for a bit and talked. And uh, I was the second hire. And the first hire was actually a good friend of mine. The guy who introduced me to the bar scene in Amsterdam was also hired for this job. So uh, that was very cool. I'd never really worked with him, but he's kind of like one of those crazy professor type of bartenders that just knows every single detail about every single bottle. And uh, Learned a lot from him and we ran that bar for about a year and a half, almost two years, I think. And then he decided to move back and the other guy, a couple of guys decided to move back to Holland as well. And in the meantime, I got into talks with uh, my current boss who basically offered me the bar manager job. And that's about six years ago, seven years ago, almost. Yeah, did that for three years. Are there differences of like running a bar restaurant across all the different places that you've lived? Or is it pretty much the same everywhere? Um, it is very different. You're dealing with very different um, customer base. The thing, like if you work in Amsterdam or in another big city, um, it's a lot of quick in and out, quick lunch, quick dinner. Uh, people are a little bit more rushed. So you have to be a little bit more efficient. Hotels, you deal with hotel guests, which is a big thing because you kind of have to do a little bit more for them. They don't really care if your bar closed at 1030 or 11, like if they're in the hotel, they kind of want that drink no matter what time you close. So there's always a little bit more leniency towards the, um, the hotel guests. Like that's a big thing. Also, one of the reasons I don't want to work in hotels anymore. It's also if you work for corporate hotels, especially there's a lot more layers you have to go through to get some stuff done. Like if I want to change something on the menu instead of just changing it like I can do now. I had to go through my supervisor, then my manager, then he had to go to his manager who had to go to the GM. And then that all had to be communicated down again. And it took you like a week before you could like change the spirit or whatever. Like that's one of the bigger things in hotels. And then here on the island, life is just slower. You know what I mean? It's, um, it's very more laid back. It's island time is, is a real thing. Like I was playing basketball this morning. Like we were supposed to be there at eight o'clock. I'm there eight o'clock sharp, dressed in, ready to play. And we don't start till 8.45 because everybody's just late. And that's just totally accepted, which is one of the few things that I haven't really been able to get used to because it's still just instilled in me to be on time and to be punctual, especially if it's work-related. But that's kind of the main thing here on the island that's different. Like people are always late for their reservations. Uh, people are late for their shifts. I've had people late for their job interviews or first days. Like it's, um, it's interesting. And then if you approach that with the Western or the European mentality, it, it's just not going to work. So you have to kind of change your approach a little bit, 
which is uh, what I'm still trying to do nine years later because I it's just it's just not my style, you know. These are my people, late to everything. everything? All right, <laughs> I'll be there. What do you mean, five minutes late or forty-five minutes late? Well, you know, <laughs> I get there. I get. I I show up. I mean, that's the most important thing, right? That's right. <laughs> All right, example, right? Uh, we went through a big hiring phase about four or five months ago. Uh, like obviously after COVID, everything had to restart again. Um, we kind of struggled along with the, the crew that we had. We had we were basically able to keep most of the staff on that weren't voluntarily leaving. So that's uh, that's very good. But then we had to hire like five or six new people. And I went through about 150 CVs, I think. Um, I invited about 30 people for, uh, for a quick interview, like some follow-up questions. And I ended up hiring four. So that's kind of the, the level of service that you get here a little bit. It's people are just not educated in the restaurant business. And you don't really need that much education, but the service mentality and the service-minded concept that you get in Europe and especially in the U.S., is just very hard to find here. Like I work for an American company or American owned. Um, Dave and Susan, the owners, they've been here for I think 19 years now. They were actually just as me called in to open a restaurant for someone they knew from back home. And they still have that American service mentality where you just do everything for your guests and you don't say no and you're on time and you get your shit done and you follow your, your, your word is your, your gold, right? So at that point, that's something that we're struggling with every now and then, especially with the hiring process. I got some really cool people now and I'm really happy with who we've been able to hire, but that is probably the biggest difference here is just how difficult it can be to get quality staff. Would you say you guys being American owned and kind of having that American mentality of service first and customer first sets you guys apart on the island? Like, are there a lot of other restaurants that you guys are competing against that are American owned or is it pretty locally owned? No, it, there, there's very few American businesses on the island, especially in the restaurant industry. There's a, there's a quite a large group of American expats living here, but it's mostly in sports betting and um, some other like online industries. Uh, a lot of banking, a lot of offshore banking, um, and they're all regulars at the restaurant because they kind of click together, which is pretty cool. Obviously, there's competition. The competition is basically other restaurants are trying to operate on the level that we are. And it's not that we're trying to be like a Michelin star restaurant. We don't necessarily want to be super exclusive or anything like that. We just want to have good food and good service on a like a consistent basis. And that's the most important thing, like that consistency. Like I'd rather be that B plus A minus all the time than have that A plus every now and then, but mix in the F every now and then, you know, that that's always been our mentality. We always want every experience to be, just have that baseline of being really good. And then whether you think it's amazing or just really good, that's kind of up to yourself. And there's more and more businesses opening that have that same mindset, which is really cool. You see a lot more young entrepreneurs recently, like the last five or six years. A lot of people uh, my age or younger, like 35 or younger, they're actually opening their own businesses or partnering up with some more experienced people and running their own business, which is uh, definitely a cool improvement to the kind of like old school society we had before where everything was owned by people that have been in the industry for 40 years, which I mean, the experience obviously speaks for itself, but the innovation is just not there at that point. 
Like you need the young blood, you need the young people, the new people that haven't really been doing the same thing for 30, 40 years to actually push the industry a little bit further. When you say push the industry further, like where do you see it going? Like what, what are the things that are the new trends? I mean, it's very easy for me to predict new trends for the island because we're always like three or four years behind. I mean, for us, it's pretty cool. Just one of our signature dishes is chicken and waffles. You see chicken and waffles everywhere in the U.S., everywhere, especially in the South. We get people every day that have never seen chicken and waffles in their life. Like that shit's been on our menu since day one for nine years now. And we're getting to a point where everybody is now putting chicken and waffles on the menu. And we're talking nine years later, which for me, like, First, yeah, I mean, copying is a compliment, I guess. It's also a little lazy. When I ran my own bar, I had the same thing. People were copying my drinks all the time. And at that point, like, I'll just take it as a compliment because you can copy the drink, but you can't copy, like, the exact thing. So it doesn't really matter that much. But for me, there's also a little bit, like, authenticity is a thing. And it's very important to me. Like, if I copy someone's ingredient or someone's recipe or, like, a, like a house-made ingredient, I quote that person or I credit them on the menu, or at least I shoot them a message like, hey, I stole your shit and it's not on my menu. I hope you're cool with it. And everybody is always cool with it as long as they get that little message or the recognition. And that's, that's one of the things that is kind of coming along a little bit more. People are working together. Uh, people are crediting each other for their, their input. Um, but especially the little brotherhood of bartenders and restaurant people, like that's kind of coming together a little bit more. People are starting to work together. People are kind of helping each other, sending guests to each other's restaurants and bars and not just trying to keep everything for themselves. That's a big, big trend here. Um, internationally, everybody kind of works together already. The bartender scene internationally is very tight. Like I have, I wouldn't say friends, but I have acquaintances all over the world just because of some competitions that I've done, uh, bars that I've visited, trade shows we've been to. Like you just make these connections and since you're all doing the same thing, just in a different spot, like you have that instant connection apparently. And I can call people now in either in Vegas or in uh, Kyoto, Japan, or in uh, somewhere in Italy or in France, and I can just get stuff done. And that's really, really cool. And I don't think that's something I just see in a lot of other industries. No, I was just going to say, I would love to experience chicken and waffles again for the first time. <laughs> I was trying to think of like things that are trending in the U.S. right now. I can't think of anything recent, but like avocado toast and like frosé, like frozen rosé is really popular in a lot of places. Like Julie lives in Chicago, so like her restaurant scene is fantastic and Kansas City is like starting to have a good restaurant and bar scene I would say as well but yeah I can't think of like anything that's like a new trend right now it's funny because my uh my previous bar manager Wesley actually he's actually from Chicago and he went to the Siegel Institute he got his brewer's diploma and all that stuff and he spent a lot of time there so we did get a little bit of the Chicago vibe into our drinks menu as well got a little bit of like all the bitter aperitifs and uh the all the cool liqueurs and all that stuff. That was pretty cool. I totally see what you mean. Like where you're saying Kansas City is kind of growing in the in the food department. Like that means you're probably still 10 years ahead of what we're doing right here. Like there's a select few spots that are taking international trends, like um, house fermented hot sauce and stuff like that. I would say that's a trend right now. But yeah, Frosé, I had that on my menu four years ago and nobody else has done it yet. Gin and tonics, like the big gin and tonics in the, in the big Spanish wine glasses, which was a trend in Holland about eight or nine years ago. 
that's finally made it here. So we're, lit, we're literally looking at trends from five years ago. So that makes it quite easy for me to be the trendsetter or have like the newest thing for the island without actually having to think about it that much. So you mentioned that you have friends all over the place through some various competitions that you've done. One of your fun facts that you gave us was that you won sixth best bartender in the world mm -hmm. at a competition. So what does a, a bartending competition look like? It's uh, it kind of depends on on which competition and which brand. Um, there is three or four big ones every year. Uh, Bowls, which is a Dutch liqueur company. They do one. That's the one that I participated in. Um, Diageo has a really big one. That's the um, supplier of like Johnny Walker and all those brands. And then uh, Bacardi has a really big competition. Uh, obviously, the last two years, it's trended more towards online presence and uh, like videos and all that stuff. But before that, nine times out of 10, first thing you do is you send in a recipe for a drink uh, within their guidelines, obviously with their product, but then also uh, they have some small details that you have to work into it, or the name has to be a certain thing, or the ingredients have to be a certain thing. Then they pick out whatever the most, like the best looking recipes are, the recipes that are sending out the most. Then usually those people get invited to regional uh, finals. Uh, for me, the regional final was really, really simple because there was only two people in this region that uh, participated. Then they usually have uh, like, for the area. So for me, that was the whole Caribbean. Um, th in this case, it was online because we couldn't really all get together because that would just be too expensive. Uh, but every area has like um, Western Europe had a winner and then Caribbean had a winner and the US had two winners, I think. And then a guy from Australia and uh, Scandinavia, like everybody had their own winners. And then we literally got invited uh, and flown out to Amsterdam for a two week stay where we just, did all kinds of cool bar stuff. So we did bar tours, went to distilleries, we had all stuff like that. And then we had to come up with a couple of recipes. You have to make those recipes in front of a judge uh, or a couple of judges. Um, there usually is like some sort of mystery box where they just dump some weird ingredients on you. You have to like think of something on the spot. Uh, sometimes there's a business pitch or something um, sustainability related, anything like that. And then the final eight or 10 or 12 or however big the competition is, let you go on stage. And then in my case, it was in front of like 1,100 people and you literally just make your drink. It's really weird because it has nothing to do with bartending at that point because you don't have that like one-on-one -on -one interaction with your guest. You don't really have anything like that. You're just kind of like putting on a show. And usually it's also whoever puts on the best show is the one who wins. Like the guy who won the competition that I did literally just savored a couple of bottles of champagne like on stage and just made a big show out of it in a big top hat. Like this guy, Rusty, is really cool. And he just made it happen. And, like, and at that point, like the price is also something that depends on every competition. Usually there's some sort of brand ambassador position for a year, which is pretty cool because you get to travel a lot. Uh, and then sometimes it's just a money price too. Like there's some legit cash prizes being sent out every now and then. Like the flair bartender competitions, sometimes it's up to like hundred grand, like serious money. Just for making fucking drinks. It's pretty crazy, right? And I mean, that's the one asterisk I would put next to the, the six spot too. Like you obviously at that point, six best of that lineup but it's always every year there's one competition and obviously there's a bunch of competitions from different suppliers and also you just have to send in your recipe if you don't send in your recipe you don't even compete to be one of the top 10 or whatever so 
it's a cool sounding title and um, a good friend of mine, Tess, she actually did the uh, Diageo competition and she was, I think also sixth, sixth or seventh, but she was the best female competitor at that point. And she just made that into her brand. Like she literally branded herself really well. She now released a couple of books. She's got two bars. She's got a, a, like a line of cocktail tools and all those things. So she really took that experience and made it into something a lot bigger than that. And I just went back to my job and just had a lot of fun. Every time I tell Annika this, every time we have another guest on, I'm like, why am I working from home <laughs> in the Midwest when I could be apparently winning money or starting a business around being a fantastic bartender? Like nobody told me these were options. And I, I get more and more upset every time I hear a new one. Yeah, and then you work 70 hour weeks and you don't get home till like midnight after you started at 10 in the morning and your back goes out from standing for 14 hours straight and you have like tennis elbow from shaking all those drinks. Like there's definitely there's definite drawbacks too. Like don't get me wrong, but it, it is a pretty fun life. I gotta say I did, I mean, didn't retire from the bartending um, thing, but after I left my bar, which was two years ago, um, I did step out of the bar physically a little bit more i'm now managing the restaurant and i hired a couple of really good bartenders who are actually doing the actual bartending for me uh, but there's people that are career bartenders and they literally just do it till retirement which uh it's a very physically taxing industry so hats off to those guys like i probably couldn't physically do it can you tell us what the day-to-day -day of that looks like I mean, first of all, it's, it's very diverse. Obviously, there's, uh, there's a big part, which is hiring, staffing, um, making sure that there's enough people to run the restaurant. Right now, we have 26 people on payroll. Mid-COVID, there was 12. So there's a lot of extra work going into that. There's a lot of guest relations. So for me, I'm there usually around 10.30 in the morning, sometimes a little later. Uh, and then I usually work till about 11 midnight, kind of depends. There's a lot of sitting behind the computer, so it's not like I'm standing 14 hours, but they're pretty long days. Then there's a lot of um, supplier management, so taking in orders, actually doing the orders, making sure that everything is stocked, making sure that all the inventory is there. One little kink here, a kink in the cable, is that a lot of the suppliers run out of shit, a lot. Transportation and shipment internationally has been brutal over the last six months. Um, everything, instead of taking three weeks, now takes six. Uh, suppliers are running out of a lot of stuff. So part of my day is literally just calling other suppliers to see if they have the same product or not. There's dealing with all kind of minor issues like our ice machine hasn't been working for last week. So I have to call my backup ice supplier while also dealing with the technician for the ice machine. I'm lucky that the owner takes care of most of the payroll and all the payments himself. So I don't really have to do any of those numbers, even though I'm keeping track. And that's also one of the bigger things is uh, making sure that your cost price and um, the pricing from the suppliers doesn't change. Because sometimes they just drop different prices on you if they're actually sending the correct stuff. And that's just everything that doesn't have to do with actual service. So that's a lot of the extra things. It's a lot of office work. It's a lot of numbers. Costing and pricing and just keeping track of uh, money going in and out is probably the most important thing that we do, but also one of the least entertaining things. And then service starts at 12 o'clock. Uh, you make sure that you do your rounds. You make sure that all the tables are set properly. 
that all the reservations are in the system and everybody got the table that they want. There's a lot of people that have specific requests for specific tables. Got to a point where some customers know the table numbers, which is really annoying because they would just literally ask for table 11, whatever. And at that point, I mean, if you're there enough to know the table numbers, you probably <laughs> have paid your, your dues as well. So yeah, then it's just service for a couple of hours, making sure that uh, food comes out of the, the kitchen on time, make sure that the drinks are coming out on time. Um, just like the standard wait staff position. Then around 2.30, 3 o'clock, close out lunch, get set up for dinner, make sure all the staff is there. Have my daily lineup with the staff, explain what the specials are, uh, which um, regular customers are coming in, any allergies, any weird stuff, any notes, any birthdays, anything like that. Then there's dinner service, which is a lot of, right now we're so insanely busy that we usually are overbooked by like four or five tables. So at night I'm playing Tetris and getting all the reservations in the right place, which is uh, challenging, but really fun if it actually works out. Like, la was it last night? Yeah, last night it started raining halfway through service and we had two tables sitting outside. So that is a whole challenge on its own. Like, where am I literally gonna put these people that I don't have a table for? Um, and then people can go upstairs, people can go outside, all those things. And then it's, uh, it's 10, 30, 11, there's a midnight curfew now, so at 11 we have to close. And then I just close out the day, run the numbers, uh, do any orders for the day after, and then make sure everything is checked out properly, that all the ACs are off, that all the fryers are off and everything is clean, and then uh, rinse repeat the day after. A lot of the behind the scenes things that people don't know or don't yeah. think about that go on in a restaurant for sure. Yeah, and, and the, the biggest challenge is combining those behind the scenes things while still being present on the floor for your regulars, but also for your staff to know that like you got their backs, right? Every now and then there's this issue where uh, we try to give them a lot of autonomy and trying to give them a lot of their own responsibilities. Uh, but every now and then there's just an issue that they cannot um, resolve themselves with the customer. And then they just have to know that you have their back and whatever happens, they like you choose their side, even though they might be wrong every now and then. But that's that's one of my big things. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, behind the scenes stuff going on that nobody really even thinks about. Like people assume that ice is just in the bar. And like if that ice machine breaks, that can be just devastating for a restaurant. Like if there's no ice, the kitchen doesn't function either because a lot of stuff needs to be kept cold, right? Uh, we've run out of gas mid-service, like that's fun. Or when it rains so hard that the power goes out, like that's fun. We've been dealing with blackouts, not this year, but the year before. There were like three rolling blackouts where the entire island was out of power. That was very interesting to deal with. If you're running a restaurant and you have about 80 people sitting down. Uh, what, I mean, there's just so many small things that can go wrong and 95% of it can be fixed before it even happens. Uh, and that's where good managers come in. And sometimes shit just goes wrong. And sometimes you just have to jump in and fix it. I'm getting not White Lotus vibes, but I just think of the GM from White Lotus. Have you seen that, either of you? I have not. Oh, give it a watch. He runs the he runs a hotel, like the restaurant and the and the bar and some of the front desk stuff. And um, it's a good show. Never mind. If nobody's seen it, I'm going to go back here. I'll put it on my list. I've heard good things about it. I've also heard the ending is not well liked, though. Live your life. <laughs> I have to add it to my list. Yep. All right. Put it in my uh, computer. It's going to be watched one of these days. So as a GM, do you, how involved are you with like the creation of the bar menu or the food menu? Do you have any say in that? Uh, 
Um, I think I have more say in bar menu than most GMs um, just take uh, because of my background in, in the drinks. Um, I have a bartender who's getting a lot more creative and he has a lot of experience. So he is now kind of taking control a little bit more. I think from the eight drinks that we have on the menu now, two or three are his. Uh, the specials every day, I don't really do anything with. That's mostly just him. Uh, but the menu in general is still, is still me. The wine menu I'm doing myself, which I'm also trying to pawn off to one of my employees because it's just a lot of work. And then we've started brewing our own beer about two years ago. So that's also a project that we tackled and that we are uh, working with, which is really cool, but a lot of extra work. And right now that's pretty much me and the bartender as well. So we're trying to train some more people to get that, as we get that done. Food wise, I mean, obviously there's input because I have first-hand knowledge from the customers, what they like, what they're interested in and all that. But the um, owner is also, one of the owners is also the chef. So he has first and final say about the menu pretty much. And then the other owner who's his wife, she is the pastry chef. So all the bread, all the desserts, all the ice creams, everything is made in house. And that's basically just her decision, her domain. We don't really mess with that at all. At all. I mean, there's, there's input, but it's uh, still mostly uh, whatever they come up with in the kitchen. And then the one thing that we look at is, is it financially feasible? And is it feasible in service? Like we had this dish that was so involved, they would have to butterfly a chicken, then fill the chicken, roll the chicken, wrap it in bacon, pre-cook it, and then finish. Like it was a four hour process for one dish. And then it was, that just wasn't practical. So at that point I step in and I just cut a couple of items off of the dish or I tell them like, listen, you should probably do that different or maybe look at that again. And usually they listen to me. Sometimes they don't, which is fine because obviously you don't want to mess with their creativity too much either. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty um, team oriented effort. I want to say we have uh, weekly or biweekly meetings and we talk about all those things and uh, we just have a couple of signatures that won't ever change. And for the rest, it's basically, Everybody can come up with an idea. And if the idea is good enough, uh, that's what we roll with. doesn't matter if you're a line cook or a dishwasher or a chef. Like much with the kitchen and especially the bar, like coming in and if you have, you know, control over the, the bar menu and, and what you're serving cocktail wise, how do you get the vibes right? Like, how do you say, okay, I'm at this place. I know I want to use these flavors or make these types of drinks? What's that process like? That's a, that's a very interesting question, actually, because that's one of the things that I um, struggle with when I do trainings. Um, I did a training last week at, um, at another restaurant. They asked me if I wanted to do a little cocktail training. And their recipes are just not drinks that I would serve in my restaurant. And I was very straightforward with them, too. And I told them that, like, you are focusing more on the Dutch clientele and their palate's a little bit sweeter. Uh, we focus a little bit more on American and that palate is a little bit drier. Certain spirits, like, uh, we have a very American uh, target group. I want to say that, like, probably 40% of our business is uh, American tourism. And that's one of the reasons that tequila is one of my best sellers. Uh, I could never do tequila in a place that caters to Dutch tourists because Dutch people have this aversion to tequila, which is based on nothing but just bad experiences, I guess. But the, the flavor profiles are a lot different. You just have to know your clientele. The biggest experiment for me was when I opened my bar, I didn't really know what the clientele was going to be. So my first menu was very diverse with a couple of, a couple of sweet drinks on there, a couple of strong drinks, a couple of sour drinks, a couple of lighter drinks with not a lot of alcohol. 
and uh, aimed towards everybody, uh, men, women, young, old, local, American, Dutch, and that kind of refined itself on its own a little bit, I guess. You just go with whatever the best-selling drinks are, and that's the style that you focus your next menu on. And it takes a while. Like I got back at Kome about two years ago, and um, there was still a bar manager in place. And I wasn't really a fan of all his drinks. Most of them really good. But some of them and some styles and some things I would have done differently. But at that point, he was still the man in charge in the bar, and I didn't want to mess with that too much either. But right now, I just took control, and me and um, Arsenio, my head bartender, we're pretty much on the same page with a lot of things. Um, sometimes I have to put my foot down and say that we just don't do that. But that's usually just my kind of my pet peeves and things. But in general, yeah, the, the flavor profiles kind of just have to match the style of food that you serve and the type of customer that you have. And that kind of figures itself out. Julie, I'm looking at the menu of this restaurant and I really think we, we need to go for research purposes. Tim, Tim and I have been talking about a uh, destination draft for a while now, so. And I've told him that if his ass goes there, he better be taking me with him. Of course. I he does expect- not get to go to a tropical Caribbean island without me. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, that would not be fair at all. You were talking about the day-to-day of being a GM. You mentioned that the hours are really long. So how does that impact you and your work-life balance and your family time? It's always kind of been um, a thing where when I met my wife, she was still working in the restaurant business as well. And our hours kind of matched up for the first couple of years. So we would start at the same time, be done at the same time, just go drinking till four in the morning, pass out and just rinse, repeat. That was kind of our life for a while. Um, But then six years ago, we had a kid and like she changed everything, obviously, like in general, but especially with work too. What was really cool for me in the first couple of years where she didn't really go to school yet is that I had my mornings off. So my mornings was, they were my time with her, right? So every morning, my wife would go to work. She took a, an office job in sports betting and she would go to work and I would just have the kid for a while. And then um, I would drop her off either at daycare or uh, at family because my wife's dad lives here too. And um, I would go to work and it was exhausting because having a kid at six in the morning after you get home at three in the morning is not easy, especially when I was running my bar at that point, I was starting at 3, at 3 p.m. and I didn't finish till like four in the morning sometimes. And then if your uh, little living alarm goes off at like five in the morning, that was not fun. But what I've noticed uh, the last couple of years, especially during COVID when we're locked down and we had to stay at home and we just had a lot more time together, I just decided that we wanted to change things a little bit. Uh, I wanted to have some more time for the family. So once we have the team complete, uh, I'm going to take a couple of mornings off. I don't want to work all my lunches anymore. Um, and just like chip away in the hours a little bit more. So it's probably still going to be more than 55 or 60, but there's going to be better times. So it's just a conscious effort to actually spend some more time with the family. And that's what it's been for a lot of people in this business. Like the, the owners, for example, they have, uh, I think she's 11 now, Carrie Lee, her, their daughter. She basically grew up in the restaurant. Like they have a bunch of good friends where she can stay the night if she needs to, if something comes up at work, if someone calls in sick or whatever, because that's also something that people don't really think about. If you call in sick, someone has to cover your shift. And if it's in the kitchen, it's most likely one of them. And if it's in the front, it's most likely just me. So instead of doing the overview thing, I just work a section, right? Or the bar for them as well. Like the kid basically grew up in the restaurant. 
they uh, just bring her in whenever it's necessary. And then with school, it's, I mean, I bring the kids to school twice a week, Mondays and Fridays. My wife brings her to work or to school in the Tuesday, Thursday and Wednesday. And I try to take my Thursday lunches off so I can take her out to do something fun before uh, I have to work the whole weekend. But it's, uh, it's tough. It's, uh, that's definitely one of the drawbacks from an industry that's both weird times and also long hours. We interviewed a chef several months ago for the podcast, and he had a similar sentiment where before COVID, he was working in a restaurant and then he kind of switched to being a private chef in people's homes. And he was saying he loved the flexibility of that because he could make his own hours and didn't have to deal with the uh, long, kind of crazy, hectic hours that he was dealing with before. So definitely different type of industry for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not your nine to five. And I, I don't think I could do a nine to five, honestly. It, it, I probably just don't know. I'd go crazy. I like the freedom. I like the, the guest interaction and all those things. But uh, every now and then I'm like, uh, office job with a good salary and a car wouldn't really be a bad thing sometimes, you know? Well, we close out the episode with some fun questions for you, some fun, easy questions. So my first one is, what is the most unique cocktail that you've ever had or made? It's kind of already a little bit more mainstream, but we do a drink with um, bacon washed bourbon. So we have bacon fat infused bourbon, which is really cool. I mean, that's a technique that was done in New York PDT, I think around 2010. So it's not really that new anymore. Um, I had a drink on the menu that was pitch black because I made it with black sesame seeds. That was pretty cool. I've done a drink where I used uh, corn husks and made like a corn husk tea and made a syrup out of that. That was pretty cool. It's kind of becoming more mainstream, but using vegetables instead of fruit in your drinks. Um, I had a drink with red beets and vermouth and a was called the Justin Beater. I thought that was pretty funny. We at, at the bar we were going for the punny names, and that's always kind of been my thing, dad jokes and stuff. But it's it's just like the weirder ingredients. Like I've seen stuff like um they're going a lot more outside of the normal food industry right now with their ingredients. And every now and then I just see something where I'm like, nah, I don't even want to try it. Yeah, it's probably probably those like if you work with um like illusions a little bit. So I had a drink technique called milk washing, where you add the whole drink and it was a dark like brunch style drink where you add citrus and uh, hot milk and that curdles up and then you strain it and you get a crystal clear drink, which is really cool. So I made a drink called Not Your Mama's Pina Colada, which was literally a clarified pina colada that you just drank like rum on ice, but it had all the flavors of a pina colada. It's like a four hour process to, to even get it started and a two day process to finish the drink, but. Okay, I was just going to ask if I could make that at home, but I don't think I can. <laughs> I mean, you could, but it's just going to take a while. Like the whole milk washing thing is a, is a pretty involved technique. But once you get it down, it's, it, it's not complicated. I know. I'm looking at the menu to see uh, like what interesting ingredients you guys have on there. We went to a cocktail bar uh, the other night and there were so many things I realized that I just don't even know what mm. some of these liqueurs are. And there's a lot out there that uh, I didn't know existed. Yeah. What's really cool is that those ingredients are actually making it internationally now too. Like there's stuff that's been made in certain regions in wherever in the world, like Italy or Japan or whatever, 
that have been staples there forever and ever and ever. And only now the last five or six years, those are making it like in onto menus around the world. And that's kind of cool. I've met bartenders from Italy that brought their aperitivo from their region and they just had everybody taste it. And then nobody could buy it because it was like limited quantities. Crazy extravagant tequilas and, and mezcals in Mexico, um, all that stuff. Yeah, you won't see stuff of that like that here unless I bring it back personally because no supplier would carry it. Okay, so you just talked about how everyone kind of has their own, can have their own like spin on things, whether that's ingredients or the liquor itself. I have a fun icebreaker that I like to do with people and it's ask them if they were a drink, what would they be? So what would you be if you were a drink? That is a very good question. I'm going to go back to my old favorite. It's called a jungle bird. It is um, kind of like deceptively sweet, strong, bitter at the same time. So it's kind of like got a whole lot of hidden layers. And I think that kind of goes for a lot of people in this industry. You have to be that like fun, bubbly personality on the front. But then there's a lot of stuff that people don't know about you right when they see you. And the drink comes out, it looks super tropical and fruity and I like pineapple fronds and all that stuff. Then you drink it and it's got like a good kick from the rum and some bitterness from Campari. So I think that would be uh, something that a lot of people in this industry actually can identify with. That or just tequila shots. I don't know. That's mine. Um, <laughs> just Annika's like, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. I love that answer though. I, that's one of my favorite questions to ask because it, it can be as involved as you want, but it doesn't yeah. have to be. No, for sure. It's a, it's a thinker for sure. And I think every day I'd probably come up with a different answer too. I don't even know what I would be. I'm going to have to think about that one. Julie, Julie would be a straight up tequila shot though. I can agree with that. <laughs> um, okay. So our very last question, we ask every single one of our guests this, it always seems to stump them. So I'm interested to see if this stumps you or not. What is your unpopular opinion? All right. Well, I have a based on nothing really kind of overly strong hate for karaoke. I don't know why. Uh, I, I think I might know why because I like good music and not like shitty performances. But I think, yeah, I think that's my unpopular opinion. Yeah, I can agree with that. It's not really fun to like watch people do karaoke unless they're really good at it, or which isn't common. Really, really drunk. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly why. And it's kind of like the same thing. A lot of people think that they're really good at it and then they really are not. I know Julie and I have done karaoke together a few times and it's not been great. <laughs> no, and I always hate going, but uh, it's because I can't sing and I don't even go to concerts. So I'm not, I don't want to go to my friends having their own personal concerts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love going to concerts. I love live music. I love good music in general. I love me a good party with some really good DJs, but uh, I got invited, literally one of my friends said in one of our group chats yesterday, like, hey, let's go do some karaoke. And me and my wife at the same time, were like, that's a hard fucking no. <laughs> like, that is not going to happen. Well, Luke, thank you for coming on and explaining yourself. If guests would like to get in touch with you, ask you questions about bartending, GMing a restaurant, or just like, you know, how to move to Curacao, where can they reach out to you? The easiest would probably just be Instagram. Uh, it's Luke's Cocktails, but then spelled L-U-U-K, where that's the way we spell Luke in Holland. 
um, or just uh, hit me up in the Komei restaurant info box. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Explain Yourself. You can find show notes for this episode on our website at explainyourselfpodcast.com. If you have questions for us or if you want to suggest a guest, send us an email at explainyourselfpod at gmail.com. And make sure you're following us on Instagram at explainyourselfpodcast and on Twitter at explain underscore podcast. We post a lot of really fun behind the scenes, some fun poll questions, and the occasional Starbucks gift card to go treat yourself. So make sure you're following us over there on those channels. And per usual, if you enjoyed this episode, please go like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Your ratings and reviews help us to grow the show, get new listeners, and of course, that way it's not just our moms listening.